Good morning, church. I am Al Robertson, the beardless brother of Duck Dynasty fame. You know, it's hard to be beardless in a family of uh, bearded people. It's hard to be the one who bathes regularly and wears deodorant. <laughs> Basically an outcast <clears throat> for all the things that make you normal, right? And yet that is my lot in life. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, thank Mike for allowing me to stand before you. Uh, I was a pastor myself for 22 years. Uh, I know how guarded this space is, and it's that way on purpose. And so thank you, Mike, uh, for trusting the Lord has a message uh, from me today for this church. Also, my friends Jason and Amanda Jenkins, uh, who are from uh, originally from West Monroe. And uh, I was shocked to learn that we, Lisa and I did their premarital counseling, and like many of those younger couples for us in the young part of our ministry, I was shocked to realize they'll be celebrating 25 years next year, which means somebody's getting old uh, around my place. I'm glad it's Lisa and not me. Uh, my better half, Lisa, is here today as well. So uh, how many of you have ever seen an episode of Duck Dynasty, just so I'll know? Okay, good. I'm among friends here. Uh, I hope. I hope you like the show. Uh, we tried not to be the Kardashians with beards, but, um, you know, in the reality world, it's hard to, to, to keep up. And so when the show first came out, it was obviously very popular. And it was really one of those word-of-mouth shows. I mean, A&E did a pretty good job of marketing it as well. But it was one of those kind of shows where people, someone told somebody, you need to watch this show. And we found that a lot of people were young people and kids that were watching it. And their parents would come in and catch them watching it. And you know how it is when a parents come in and catch somebody watching something new on television. What is that? And they're like, well, I don't know, it's bearded people and they pray at the end, you know. And so parents began to watch and it kind of became a family phenomenon, which is great. Our show is compared to a lot of other shows because you have to describe it, right? What's it like? And so we heard, well, it's kind of like, you know, Andy Griffith. Uh, there's some qualities of that, which is a great old show. And maybe some Waltons thrown in there because there's like a family component. And then the Dukes of Hazard come over <laughs> and, you know, blow some stuff up, Right. And so when you put all that together, it made for a fun show. Now, me personally, I compared our show to the Munsters. Do you remember the Munsters? You can get it now on TV land, I'm sure, from time to time. The Munsters was a great old show. Uh, it was made back in the 60s. It was when you know any show could be watched without fear of bleeping. And uh, it, it was, you know, the setup and the premise for the Munsters were that they were a family of monsters. But they were kind and gentle monsters, you know, just trying to raise their family in L.A., and they had this beautiful cousin that came to live with them. And because she was beautiful and they were monsters, she had an identity complex. Does anybody remember her name? See, that's the problem. Um, <laughs> she was beautiful, and yet nobody remembers Marilyn Munster anymore. I can completely relate to Marilyn Munster. I totally... <laughs> Nobody knows who Al is. Oh, there's a brother. Yeah, he's a pastor. He doesn't have a beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, right? Nobody remembers you unless you're different, you know? And so that's kind of the culture that we live in. Now, our personalities are very different in the family. And so some of you had an opportunity. Actually, most people don't get this opportunity to see that on display this weekend because my brother Willie was here. Uh, and so we were able to contrast the sort of debonair, suave approach of myself Versus an uncouth approach uh, from my brother. So to better describe our personalities, I want to use uh, one of my favorite illustrations is, is Labrador Retrievers. Now, 
Labs are great dogs. They're, uh, even if you're not a hunting family like us, they're great pets, right? Uh, some of you may have a lab at home. We almost have exclusively in the Robertson family used black labs uh, as, our, as our retrieving dog. And the reason why is because a black lab is, I mean, the Almighty has put something in them. They want to go get a duck as much as we want to shoot a duck. And that's a lot because our family loves to hunt ducks. And so they're just like go-getters, you know. They, they, they break through ice. They do whatever it takes, and they want to go get it. They'll look at you disappointed when you miss. You know, like, what's the deal, you know? I was ready to go get this duck. So that's how fired up they are about being there. Now, in our family, that describes my dad, the duck commander. My dad is 73 years old, and in a couple of months, he will be like a 10-year-old boy in anticipation of duck season opening. It'll be like it's the first time it's ever happened. Forget Christmas Eve for my dad. Duck season Eve is the night, right? And, and the reason why is he's a black lab. He loves it. My brother, Jace, uh, who's on our podcast uh, that Mike mentioned as well, uh, he's also a black lab. He hunts every single day. It's in his genetics. It's in his blood. Now, a yellow lab is a great hunting dog. Yellows can be champions. They go get ducks. They love to hunt. But if any of you have a yellow, you realize they're a little more domesticated. You know, they're not always just about the hunt. They're great service pets. They're great with kids. You know, they're domesticated. Now, in our family, that describes yours truly, beardless brother. I'm domesticated. I realize it. I'm soft. I'm getting a little softer as I get older. That's okay. I love my grandkids. I love being home. I don't have to hunt every single day. If I haven't seen a duck in seven days of hunting, I figure it's a good day to sleep in. That's the way I think. But that's the way a yellow lab thinks, not a black lab. Now, my, my baby sister, Jep, uh, who, uh, who lives down in Austin, the reason we call him, and Willie called him baby sister this, this week, too, because he's just sensitive, you know? He's built like a yellow lab, and that's the way he was. He was the last in the line, so, you know, that's what happens. But he's like me. He loves family. He loves to hunt. He loves both. He's a yellow lab. Now, any dog breeder will tell you, you take a black and you take a yellow and you cross them. You begin to break down the breed of the dog a little bit, and so what you get is a little bit kookier and crazier dog. <laughs> and in the lab family, that becomes the chocolate. Now, the chocolate, I've seen some champion chocolates. I mean, go-getters, they're like the black lab. And I've seen some that didn't know come here from Sikkim, you know? They're just, they're, you know what they are? They're the bless their heart dogs, right? And you love them, and you pet them, and they're great, and they're, they're kind of clumsy, and they fall over each other. Now, in our family, believe it or not, those of you who are here this weekend got to experience our chocolate lab. It's my brother, Willie. And it was evident watching his speech to me why he's a chocolate lab. I mean, he's funny. He's all over the place. And then he's off running. You don't know what he's talking about. He's, he put the A and D in ADD. My brother Willie did. <laughs> and therefore, he's a chocolate lab. Some days he's the CEO. Other days he's just Willie. But when I try to think of a lab to describe my Uncle Cy from our show, man, there's only one I know really that would work. I think this guy. Well, it's confirmed you did watch the show. Now I know. Uncle Si. Everybody wants to know about Uncle Si. Um, 
First thing, you look at a picture, a comparison picture of Uncle Si from 1968 when he was about to go to Vietnam versus today. The first thing that comes to my mind is the years have been unkind to Uncle Si. Uh, uh, But Si is a great godly man. He's uh, he's been married to the same woman for 46 years now, Christine. And uh, she's she's different like Cy is, and they make it work. You know, that's kind of the way it is. Whenever the show first came out, Cy was getting the people thought, since Christine wasn't on the show, they thought he was a widower. And so we were getting marriage proposals all across America <laughs> for grand, little grandkids trying to fix up Cy with their grandmother. Oh, she's great. You would love her. She's so funny. You know, she, she loves you on the show. And so dad hears about this and dad tells me, I just happened to be on, on the set that day. And he said, have you been hearing this story about all these women around America sending marriage proposals to, to your uncle Si? And I said, yeah, I've heard about that. And he said, what is wrong with womanhood in America? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know, but I'll tell you something even more strange. 90% of the marriage proposals come from the state of Alabama. <laughs> so I don't know what that means. But everybody always laughs when I tell that true fact. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, my dad this morning because that's kind of where our story obviously begins in, in our lineage uh, in the Duck Dynasty family uh, and decisions that have been made. When My dad was uh, sort of looked like an all-American type kid in the mid-60s and was a football player at Louisiana Tech University. And then he became this duck man. And when you look at that comparison picture, I mean, to me, the first thing you say is, how does that happen? How does that transformation take place? You know, do you go down here to Bentonville High School and go into the guidance counselor's office as a teenager about getting ready for college? You say, you know, I'm thinking about letting myself go. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to shave for the rest of my life. I won't cut my hair very often. Bathing and, you know, all that will be, you know, as needed. And I'm going to become a huge success, a business success, and even a cultural success in the fact that I will be a leading voice in America for what's right and what's wrong, because that's how I view my dad now. It's a cultural icon, a person you always know what you're going to get. My dad has a prophetic mentality. And look, prophets weren't all that popular, you know, in the Bible, because they just spoke truth. And it wasn't always popular, and it was exactly what God put in them to say. And that's exactly the man that he has become. So obviously, in in our family and from our perspective, this was a God-ordained transition to do something and to impact when a, a time when our culture needed it. And so it's not always, it's not always the same way how God raises that up or raises a man up or raises a family up. I mentioned dad was at Louisiana Tech University. His backup when he was there for the first two years, actually two and a half years, was a guy named Terry Bradshaw, who went on to be a fair quarterback in his day. He won four Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh Steelers. If you watch Bradshaw now do an interview about dad, uh, and there's several out there on the internet, uh, he'll say, I'm glad that that dude decided to go chase ducks because I wanted to chase Super Bowls. And it was a lot easier for me to do that without him being in front of me. That's how talented dad was. They honored them at Louisiana Tech about four years ago. And it was a great night because first time they had been together in 45 years. And, you know, Bradshaw is from Shreveport. Dad is from a little town called Dixie, which is just up the road. And so there's two North Louisiana country boys who really made well 
in our culture. And it was really fun for me just to hear them tell stories. And you could tell they were still the same men in their hearts that they were when they came to Louisiana Tech all those years ago. That night, they also honored Dad with the 2014 Alumnus of the Year. And as part of that, you know, you they put you in the Louisiana Tech Alumni Hall of Fame, you know, which is a big deal for the family. Wasn't such a big deal to Dad when they announced it because he's not really an awards guy. And so Dad, you know, wasn't that enthused about it. But for, for Mom and I, for our family, it was a big deal. So they have a plaque that they have up in the Alumni Center and they have all these people in there, and Bradshaw was there, and Carl Malone, and you know, Kicks and Dunn, and other famous people that went to Louisiana Tech, and people of business and industry, and all these great things. So I went down to take a picture of this plaque to see it after it was put up. And so I looked at all these things, and I mean, it's over a hundred of them that go back a hundred hundred plus years of university. And I'm looking and I'm seeing some people I recognize, a lot I don't. I think, man, what a neat thing. First of all, I noticed no other picture looked like my dad. He was totally unique. Nobody else looked like that. And then the second thing as I was reading, I looked at all the other plaques that were there. And I looked at dad's and, of course, duck hunting icon, which when you're called the duck anything, then that means you're an icon. I, I would argue he's probably the most famous duck hunter in the world. Of course, he's a television personality, and if it wasn't, let's face it, it wasn't for the TV show and the success, he wouldn't be on the wall, but something has to get you there. But then the third thing was probably the most impressive to me, because when I look at all those other names, I noticed my dad was unique in more than just the way he looked. On his plaque was the only plaque that mentioned the name of our Lord, because that was, that was and is the most driving force in his life. That's who he became was a servant of Christ. And my dad, trust me, would never care whether he wound up on that wall or not. But Christ needed to be on that wall. It needed to be a reminder in our culture that there are things that are more important than my 401k, than all my accomplishments, and all the things that the world looks at and says, this guy or this gal is a success. Success is more, success is deeper. When you look at our family, there's a 2017 picture. This one I love to show. This was the last night that we filmed for the show. It was the, it was the series had ended and we were doing our clip show where we were going back and sort of looking at the, you know, retrospect of the show. And so someone from our crew captured this shot. You can see some cameras still in the, in the scene. And so this was the last time we were together in 2017. And so when I look at this picture and it's stately and it's laid out and it's balanced and there's three generations there of faith, I look at this picture and I realize from the standpoint of a lot of people in our country and now around the world, because the show is global, they look at this family and they think, you know what? That's a family I could be like. Three generations of faith, people that love each other, forgive each other, obviously have understood success, have come out of it relatively intact. I look at that family and I think, you know, that could be a family we could model ourselves after. And I'm very humbled by that fact. But then I love to show audiences a picture of that same family in 1972 when things weren't great, when there was no good modeling here, when they, we were fractured, and when the picture here, this is 1972, this is me, Jace, and mom is pregnant with Willie, and just a few months after this picture was taken, my family would be torn apart 
because of alcohol abuse, physical abuse, terrible situation. Dad completely lost his way. Mom was so depressed that she was having thoughts of suicide. That was our 1972 Robertson family of dynasty without any hope of making it not only another month, but another day. That's where we were. And so you say, well, what happened between 1972 and 2017? Because obviously this thing turned around at some point. Well, three things happened. The first thing that happened was that my mom had a moment where she finally had to succumb to Christ because she had nowhere else to turn. She had three boys to raise without a husband who was there for her. And she thought, I can't do this alone, but I don't know where to turn. So I'm turning to the only place I know, and that's Almighty God. And Christ redeemed her and changed her and gave her strength and courage she didn't even know she had. Out of that decision, which made it worse for our family for several months, because now my dad just projected all his worldly guilt onto her because now she was a goody two-shoes. So our family got worse until finally they split up. Until finally dad got so down in such a bad place without a family that he finally was willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And when he did it, he was one of those kind of people that went from the rank heathen to John the Baptist overnight. I mean, he became, and he kind of looks like John the Baptist or what we imagine John the Baptist look like now, right? I mean, he looks strange, he eats strange things and he points people to Jesus. If that's not my dad, I don't know what is, you know, the description of him. But this guy made a decision. And when he made it, he was all in. So that was the second thing that then altered our destiny. The third thing that happened was that dad decided that, you know what? He wasn't going to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish by teaching school and coaching. Because that's everything in his school career, what he had done at Tech, he had lost his way, but now he was back. Everything said, this is what you need to do because this is what you were educated for. This is what you were trained for. But dad said, that's not it. I love to hunt and fish. And that's what I want to do for a living. So he told mom that we were going to move down to the Washtenaw River and we were going to start commercial fishing. And out of that, we were going to build a duck call business. And one day we would sell a million dollars worth of duck calls. That was his early vision that first year. And he came in and told his parents that, my grandparents, because they lived next door to us. And they didn't say a word because they thought he's crazy. Mom said, we're going to starve to death. That's what everybody thought about his vision that he had. And so we started fishing. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, fishing is a faith-based business. Or at least it was for us. Because we would get down on our knees, and before we would go out and run our nets, my dad would pray to the Almighty. He said, Father, we need about 300 pounds of catfish today. We got a couple notes due at the bank. And so I'm just, I'm appealing to you that when we pick up those nets, they're going to be in there. Now that was the prayer that we were praying. We'd go out, we'd run those hoop nets, we'd get in, we'd load them in tubs. And you, dad could usually tell from the tubs how much we had. Mom would take them in. She'd come back home and say, Miss Kay, how much we have? 313 pounds, Phil. Just enough to pay those bills. And it happened over and over and over again. For years, we were building the duck call business by relying on the Almighty. You know why that was going on? Now that I have kind of a 30,000-foot view and can look back and see, we were under the same type training program that Moses was. 
in Exodus. It's about a 40-year plan where you had to understand in humility that one day you would be a big deal, but so that you wouldn't think it was you, the Almighty made you depend on him. That's what was happening to the Robertson family. We were having to trust in him. See, he knew one day that that 2017 picture would be there. He knew we'd be on national television. He knew there would be people that admired us. He knew we'd sell millions of books. He knew we would be telling this story. He knew that we would be in front of thousands of people. And the last thing he wanted us to think is that we are the ones that got us there. But that he had built a platform. He had brought us along. He had provided that manna on a daily basis for us to sustain. Never too much, just enough. And so for 40 years, that's what we did. In that, my dad and my mom honored the Almighty because they always gave him the credit and the glory. So you fast forward a few years, and a show comes along called Duck Dynasty. Personally, I thought it was about a Chinese restaurant because I didn't even know what a Duck Dynasty was. But that's what they wanted to call it. I'm fine. So their moniker was money, family, and ducks. Well, we had a little money, but it wasn't about money. It never has been. We were definitely about family, and we were definitely about ducks. But we say about ourselves that we are faith, family, and ducks. That, that is what built us. And so when the show first came out, they sent about 10,000 of these placards that you see here to us. And so they wanted some of the family to sign those and mainly to send them out to what they call influencers, people that might watch the show, people we knew, relationships, whatever. So we had our staff and our crew at Duck Commander and us sit down with black Sharpies and take a pen and mark through money and write in faith on every single one of them and send them out. And so when people got these, we're hearing all these words back come back and say, man, the marketing people in A&E are amazing. You know, the way they marked out this thing with money and put faith in there, and they're really just advancing spiritual values. This is amazing. We were like, isn't it? Isn't it something? How they get us? But they never got us. They were advancing a completely different narrative. But you know what I love about the Almighty God? He will use any impetus. He will use any pathway to get his will done. Even a corporation in New York and a production company in L.A. and a bunch of rednecks in Louisiana that give him glory. You talk about our Bermuda Triangle that's going on there. And yet the Almighty used us to glorify, to call his name. We had the prayer at the show on the show that really became the calling card of the show. And the reason it was, you know why that prayer wound up on the show? Because that's what we did every time we ate. That's what dad said. We got together. They didn't, weren't sure what to do. And he said, uh, we pray before we eat. Oh, okay, let's try that. And that became the iconic moment of the show. That's because God's name was always destined to be glorified through what he had raised us up to do. That was the point. My episode, my first episode on the show was one, it was the season four premiere, and it was called Till Duck Do Us Part, which is arguably the most beloved episode of our series. It was about mom and dad's 50 years together. And, and those of us who had lived all those early years that I showed you that picture of, this episode was very special because it reminded us that God had been there all through the process. Well, they needed a pastor to be able to say the vows, and who better 
than the beardless one who hasn't been on the show yet. And so that night when that show aired, it still is the highest rated cable reality television show ever. 12 million viewers tuned in that night. Ratings phenomenon. Even the entertainment media that hated us had to acknowledge something's going on with this show. Now, I told Willie, since this was my debut and it was the highest rated show ever, (laughs) I seemed to link those two together. And my comment was, if you had had me on this show from season one, there's no telling where this thing could have gone, right? (laughs) America wanted some beardlessness with their beards. But it was very special. And I was glad to be a part of it. It was also a reminder to me that I hadn't always been the man I needed to be through the process of our family. Early on, my mom depended on me. I helped take care of my brothers. I was her rock when dad couldn't be there. I think, unfortunately for me, because I had so much responsibility early, instead of that forging me into the man I needed to be, when that pressure relieved, when dad and mom got it straight, I got, I was aimless. And so I started wandering in my heart. And so when I was a teenager, I lost my way. Started when I was about 14. I was a double secret agent in the church, sitting on the third row with the other youth group kids, singing the songs, looking great. Everybody thought I was a great kid because I smiled at the right people, but I wasn't. Jesus describes it as a grave where inside there's just a dead man's bones because there's not a heart that beats for him. So by the time I got to my senior year in high school, I was lost. I had lost my way. Uh, My double life caught up with me because usually you have to make a decision at some point who you're going to give your allegiance to. And so I was put in that position because my lifestyle had finally come out. And so my dad sat down with me and said, you got to make a decision, son. You can stay with us and you can change your lifestyle or you can hit the road and you can give it your best shot. I was 17 years old. I just graduated high school. I was full of vim and vigor. And I thought I knew better than anybody else. So like the son in Luke 15... I decided to go to a distant country and squander the spiritual wealth that God had given me. A changed family, a wonderful church, so many good things. And I was so selfish. I was dating a girl at the time who was crazy about me. She loved me. I broke her heart. I left her there in West Monroe and I took off. And my distant country was a place called New Orleans, Louisiana which is a lot of place to squander good gifts. I lost my way. I became involved with a woman who was married, and I told her I was 21 when I was only 18. She told me she had been separated from her husband for a long period of time. We were both lying, and it caught up with me on a city street in Kenner when this jealous husband tried to take my head from the rest of my body with a crowbar. Now, you know, some people get so hard-hearted and hard-headed that it takes a crowbar from the evil one to wake them up. That's what happened to me that day. I was fortunate I wasn't killed, obviously. But sort of in that bewildered state, I sat down on the corner, and there were police cars there, and everybody left. This guy was a drug informant. It was just a whole big story. It was ugly. It looked like a scene out of a movie. Until finally it was just me my beaten up car 
my beaten up body and one police officer sitting next to me. And he started telling me about a man that I'd already known from a long time ago, a man that could change hearts, change lives and change destinies. Man, I'm so forever grateful for that police officer. I don't know who he is. I'll find him in heaven. He's one of the first guys I want to look up and say, you know what? I heard you that day. I listen. So many of us have a moment of influence, maybe a young person, maybe somebody else. And it could be just that one time when they're ready to hear it. That's why we always have to be willing to tell the story. You never know when somebody's willing to hear it. I was ready that day. He could have told me to jump off the Huey P. Long Bridge and I would have done it. Instead, he said, you know what you need to do? You need to go home. And man, home sounded so good at the time. He asked me about my family. I told him. I described him. And so I decided that day I was going home. I made a long list of my grievances and all of the things I was going to do to turn it around. I was just going to ask for a chance. I didn't want to be considered a son yet. Just one of the hired hands. Just somebody that worked for the business. Just let me build some duck calls and prove that I can be different. That was my plan. But wouldn't you know it, when I got home, Mom and Dad met me in the front yard. There was no long list. They had been looking for me. They came and they met me and they threw their arms around me and they welcomed me. They didn't give me a long list of what I had to do to get right. My dad said, Al, welcome home, son. We got duck calls to build. And just like that, I was a son again without any compulsion, without any list. I was welcomed into grace. With that night, we killed a fattened catfish and had a celebration <laughs> because a lost son had come home. I was going to go it alone. I decided that women were a problem for me. and It was me, not them. And so that lasted a few months, and I thought, that's not my gift. And so I remember that girl that loved me, and I'd heard she'd had some real trouble in her life, but I had too, so how could I blame her? So I called her up. I said, hey, I'm back. And she said, I heard you. I still had a little bravado, you know. It was godly bravado, but it was bravado. And she said, yeah, I heard. Small town, I heard you're back. So I heard you're dating somebody like super serious. She was about to graduate high school. She said, I am. He's a good guy. He wants to marry me. You know, she, she's let me know, you know. I said, well, that's good. I said, you want to go out Friday? <laughs> it took about two beats. And she said, yep. And that poor guy never had a chance. And today she's doing the PowerPoint. So it worked out pretty well. We had to, we had made a decision. I told her about my life change and she said that sounded really good because she had always seen more in me than I saw in myself. And so we started talking about dating and we did. And then we started talking about getting married and that time shortened down a lot because, you know, when your biology starts taking over your theology, you have to, you know, decide maybe we need to go ahead and get married. And so a few months later, we did. And we started our life together. And what a life has been. We took a lot of baggage into our relationship, some stuff we had to sort out and deal with. We talk about it a lot in our books. But the Almighty has been with us the whole way. He decided to guide me into ministry. And so for 22 years, I taught and I preached. 
And you know, my goal in our church, because I was one who had come home, was to be a homecoming preacher. I wanted people to always feel welcome that at any time they could come back, no matter where they were, that the love of Christ was so high and so deep and so wide, either direction, it was never too far away that you couldn't come home. That's what I wanted for our church. To this day, I'm not there, of course, preaching anymore. I'm still an elder there. That's the kind of church we are. The kind of church where people say, you know what? I don't know what to do with them. Get them to White's Ferry Road. They'll take anybody. I love that. <laughs> That's the kind of church I want to be. Because you know what? They took me. They took my family. And they allowed us to grow and to disciple and to become something powerful. Lisa and I began a marriage ministry where we talked about difficult things that had happened to us and things we had survived. Lisa's story is tremendous, and we shared some of that here on Friday night. We wrote a book called A New Season, which told about our lives. The show gave us this huge platform to talk about such important issues like marriage and adultery and forgiveness and how you come back from that. Like how do you come back from having an abortion and carrying the guilt of that forward? And yet being able to talk to young girls about making the right decision instead of the one that's going to haunt you for your whole life. We just wrote a new book called Desperate Forgiveness. We have some of those here today if you're interested. But the bottom line is this. Our stories were amazing, but only amazing because they finally intersected his story. And that's anybody's story. We all have one different ways, some good, some bad, some came up in a good home, some didn't, but all had the opportunity to intersect the story of Christ, which truly makes us great. So even if you come out of the best situation, it's still not great unless Christ is in charge of who you are. These symbols that we have on our screen are some things that a, one of my mentors drew out years ago, and all they are is just a representation of the wonderful story of Christ, that he would come to this earth because he loves us so much that he would never leave us without an opportunity to live forever. So much so that he would die on a cross, give himself so that his blood would sacrifice for all of us. That one time perfect sacrifice, God in flesh on a cross that they put him in a tomb that couldn't hold him. So three days he walked out and said, you don't have to be afraid of this six foot hole in the ground. You can come out. He went back to the right hand of the Father, where to this very moment, as we sit here this morning in Bentonville, Arkansas, he is mediating for us. He is in heaven representing us. And he told his disciples, therefore he tells us, I'll never leave you. So that last arrow says, I'm coming back. And it's going to be like a thief in the night. You won't know when it is, but if you're ready, we're going to have some ride for all eternity the story of Christ. And all we have to do is submit ourselves to him and that story. And it changes us. I told you this morning how it changed my family. And it can do the same for you and for your family. If you've never obeyed it, if you've never accepted it and embraced it, Jesus, forgiveness and grace. Father, we love you so much. We're so blessed to have the opportunity to be here this morning. I pray, Father, first of all, a prayer of thanksgiving. I pray, Father, that you will continue to bless our lives as we love you, as we serve you.
I'm so thankful you forgave us and changed our destiny. Father, for any hearts here today that have been touched by your story, I pray they'll find that same peace and grace and opportunity and hope they can only be found in you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.